Well, if you guys have been with us, excuse me, since the beginning in the book of Ecclesiastes, you may remember that we began by summarizing this book of the Bible as an uncomfortably blunt, disjointed, and disturbed inner dialogue about how so much of life is hevel or vaporous. That's the word he uses. It means like a vapor, something that's hard to wrap your mind and your hands around, with a simple conclusion at the very end. And while, excuse me, I think that's a great summary of the book still. Um, It's a little bit incomplete because what you do have throughout the book is it's not always just an inner dialogue. There's times when he's kind of speaking outward to his audience. And there's times when some encouragement is just kind of sprinkled in there. Just some encouraging, practical wisdom dispersed throughout this inner dialogue we see him going through. And some of that happens um, last week. In chapter 3, when he's talking about how there's a time and a place for everything, and Lance walked us through that, that he's made everything beautiful in its own time. What we're going to see today is kind of a mix, um, a lot of that inner dialogue and also some kind of encouraging nuggets along the way. So he's going to walk through five struggles, five just kind of aspects of life under the sun that he looks at and reflects on. And the first is mortality. We're going to see that in chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. Um, He's trying to find meaning in life, but he keeps getting hung up on the fact that at the end of the day, everyone's life ends in death, and that it's similar to animals, that they just, one day they're dead, or one day they're alive, and the next day they're dead. Look at 19 through 21 in chapter 3. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. That's that word hevel, that, that vapor. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Now, there's a term that theologians often use called progressive revelation. And here's what that means. That as the story of Scripture unfolds from Genesis to Revelation, God is progressively revealing more and more of himself. In other words, um, Abraham understood probably a little more than Noah did. And Moses understood a little more than Abraham did as God was continuing to reveal more and more about himself. And we, on this side of the cross, have an even greater understanding than anyone in the Old Testament had of God's ways in God's plan. That's referred to as the mystery of Christ hidden in ages past in the book of Ephesians that has now been made known in the person of Jesus. So part of what that means is with afterlife, with what happens to us after we die. In the old covenant, especially when Solomon was writing this, likely Solomon, um, there was not a solidified, grounded concept of heaven and hell like we have in the new covenant. There was some sense and some hope of being with God again, but it wasn't so established and grounded at that time as what we know today. So he's looking at life under the sun and saying, look, man dies just like the beast, so what's the point of it all? And he does have a little bit of a helpful conclusion in verse 22. He says, so I saw that there's nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Um, in other words, he's looking at it going, hey, you're going to live, you're going to die. It's like the old man in the tire shop, you know, that starts with, I guess the best a fellow can do, right? It's like, I guess the best a fellow can do is just try to enjoy his work because 
a lot of life is work. I mean, whether it's in your vocation or just keeping yourself and others fed and clothed, it's a lot of work. And that's the hand you've been dealt, so about the best you can do is try to find some enjoyment in it. And while that's, that's helpful, right? I mean, that can be helpful wisdom for us. Like if you're in a situation that you don't like and maybe the, it's going to end in a year, maybe it has no foreseeable end, but it's something you don't like, you can't get yourself out of it, but it's the reality you're in, man, the best you can do is try to find some enjoyment in the good things that accompany your life during that time. But at the end of the day, I think we would all agree that's a little bit of an unsatisfying answer to these questions that he's asking about the meaning of life in light of mortality. Then he moves on to the idea of oppression. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Behold the tears of the oppressed, and there was no one to comfort them. I imagine him as a king, right, being up in his high palace, looking out, just seeing oppression and injustice um, on, a, on a micro level that he is a king, maybe can't do anything about. Whether or not he can do anything about it is beside the point. The reality is it's there. It's happening. And it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem just. It doesn't seem fair. And he concludes that to the people who grow up and live a life under the context of oppression, he's like, man, it would be better if they're not even born. And then he takes it a step further, as if that's not pessimistic enough. And he goes, no, no, who really has it made is, is the guy, not the guy who's dead, but the guy who was never born in the first place, right? Those are the guys that are really the best off here. Because he looks at some people's situation, and he just thinks, how terrible is that? It'd be better for that person if they were never born. And you may have watched the news and thought that at some point, heard some stories, or maybe even known someone who just got dealt a really difficult hand and thought, Man, what's the, what's the point in that person even being born if their life is going to be filled with that much suffering and difficulty? And guys, the reality is he doesn't really give us any resolve there. He's just kind of observing and commentating on some difficult realities in the world which he sees. And we have similar conundrums even with our understanding in the New Testament. Romans 13, for instance, just to give you one example, talks about how Paul's telling Christians, look, obey the authorities that are above you. And if you, will, if you will live an honest, good life, you won't have to fear those in authority. But then later, he'll turn right around and comment about the fact that all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The very authorities we're supposed to trust in and not fear for doing good will still turn against us for following Jesus. You can't win. It's like, what do we do with this? This is This is hard. The cool thing about it is we have a, a holy book, a scripture, a word from God that's not afraid to confront some of these difficulties. And it's okay for us to say, man, I don't have a good answer to every single question. We trust God in spite of it. But sometimes there are just things that are hard to answer that are just hard to make sense of. And he's walking through those things when he looks at oppression. He moves on to the topic of work. And he just makes the comment in chapter 4, verse 4, that most work is done out of envy, right? And I love this, just continues on this kind of pessimistic rant. He goes, hey, all this stuff you think is so noble, if you're building and achieving and providing, let's be honest, you're keeping up with the Joneses. <laughs> That's what this is really all about, right, is you're doing this all out of envy. And so then he says, you would expect him to kind of say, hey, let's just all take a step back and not try so hard, not strive after the wind, not kill ourselves trying to keep up with the Joneses. But instead, he kind of comes to the other extreme and he says, 
the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. In other words, if you stop working, you're going you're gonna to bury yourself in poverty and be in any of a worse situation. So it's like, well, what do you do? Well, he does offer a little bit of helpful wisdom here. Again, a little bit of encouragement in verse 6. He says, better is one handful of quietness than two handfuls of striving after the wind. So it's like, hey, it's better to have a little bit of contentment. You don't have to keep up with the Joneses. You don't have to win every race, right? Calm down a little bit. One handful of quietness is better than always pursuing the next big thing. Again, some wisdom there, some good stuff. Still a little bit unsatisfying, if we're honest, his conclusions. And if you thought it was pessimistic now, just wait till he starts talking about politics in verse 13. Um, that's what we're going to jump to. We'll come back to verses 7 through 12, but now let's look at verses uh, 13 through 16. And he tells this story, and he says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. So here's the story. He's like, you got two guys here. On this side, you got this king, and he's old. He's, think about a king. He's powerful. He's rich. He has the world at his fingertips. He could have anything he wants at any time, but he's foolish. Still seems like a pretty good situation. Then he says, on this side, you got a youth, a young guy. And you find out later, he's, he's not, not only he's not king, but he's kind of in poverty. Um, he doesn't have a lot going for him, but he's wise, and that's a good thing. And then he just starts to tell the story about how this young guy, because of his wisdom, eventually works himself up into a better position, and he becomes king. So he says that that youth with wisdom is better off than the king who's foolish. Now, let me just pause here for just a second and point something out. Um, I don't know a whole lot about soccer, but every once in a while I'll watch the World Cup just because it feels like a, a thing you're supposed to do as a human living on planet Earth. You know, when the World Cup's going on, it's like everyone's crazy about it, especially in other countries outside the United States. And so I started watching the World Cup, this, I don't know, six, seven years ago, do the math, whenever they have the World Cup. This was a while back. And I'll never forget this. It was being broadcasted by a British station. So you're hearing the British commentary in the background. And it's showing the highlights, right? All these cool things that have happened. And so it starts off where this guy kicks a penalty kick and this goalie jumps over and just makes this amazing save. Like, oh, look at this. It's so awesome. Look at that save. And then it goes to a second highlight. It's not a penalty kick. It's like during the game, Guys make a couple good passes. It sets this guy up for this wide open shot. He winds up. I don't know if you call it winding up in soccer. But he winds up. He kicks the ball. And it just barely misses the goal. Goalie didn't touch it. It just barely missed. And like, oh, such great effort. And I'm like, y'all don't see highlights the same way we do. <laughs> like, we would never celebrate his effort when he didn't win, like the point is he missed the kick. That would never make the highlight reel if it was being broadcasted by the U.S. And then I realized if you, part of your history was being on their side of the American Revolution, you would have to learn to celebrate effort without victory, right? I mean, that you just have to learn to live with that. Um, but the point is like, you had this huge setup, right? I'm watching, and I'm not that into soccer, but I'm watching and going, okay, this is, I'm getting back to see this amazing shot, is it a sh whatever you call it, when he's kicking the ball into the goal, and then it's like they pull the rug out, it's like, and he missed. And I'm like, oh, that was disappointing. That's kind of what you have in this story. So he tells the story of this guy that goes from rags to riches, like better off as a wise youth than an old and foolish king, because he starts low, he ends up as the king. And then he just pulls the rug out from under the whole story. In verse 16, he says, Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind. 
wah, 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 right? This big story about this Cinderella man, and oh, yeah, that too was vanity. That also was meaningless because another generation comes and no one knows who he is and he's in isolation. And that's what we see in this next section, which is actually the section before, verses 7 through 12. He's dealing with the, the conundrum of being isolated. So in verse, chapter 4, verse 7, he says this, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. So imagine just a, a single guy, single dude. Yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied. He's working. He's this workaholic without a family, just conquering, achieving, gaining wealth. Never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also was vanity and an unhappy business. So he's looking out and seeing young men who have so much ambition and drive and are depriving themselves of sleep and food and health in order to achieve financial success or success in their career. And they never stop to ask, why am I even doing all this? And then he moves in to this very practical wisdom. So we're going to see in these next few verses, some verses that you've probably heard before. You may have seen them on t-shirts or coffee mugs. And what they are is just a celebration of the value of community and friendship. So he throws this out there in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no other to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So again, what you're seeing here is a celebration of community and friendship. And that's the context this is in. Now we can, we can take these principles of it being better to be with someone. We can apply that to marriage. We can apply that to parents having a good relationship with their kids. But what he's talking about specifically here is in the context of friendships, um, peers, Families or individuals knowing each other outside of family. And he says, goes through the series of situations in which see how it's always better. In the hard times, in the difficult times, in um, the good times, in the challenging times, whatever you're going through, the big things, the little things, it always works out better for you if you're not going at it alone. When God was creating the world, he, he ended everything he made with he saw it and said it was good. He made this thing and said it is good. He made this and he said it is good. Then he made man. And Adam was there by himself and he said for the first time, it is not good. This is before sin entered the world. God looked at Adam and said, it's not good that man should be alone. So then God creates Eve and from that come the human race. God made us to live in community. One of our prayers for our kids, my wife and I, is that even at this age, they would develop good, strong, healthy, reliable friendships that they can lean on so that they can walk with their peers through life in the context of that camaraderie and community that God wants us to live in that way. And if there's one bit of wisdom in today's text that's just real practical, I would, I would point you to, it's this, and I would just implore you, don't walk through life alone. 
Ask any lifeguard about this, and they will tell you that one of the most dangerous situations is not so much when someone's in the pool by themselves. I mean, yeah, if you go to the pool by yourself and there's no lifeguard, there's a danger to that in that isolation. But what's just as, if not more dangerous, is you being alone and drowning in a pool full of people. Because they're all busy, they're all doing their thing, and no one notices that you're drowning in their midst. And one of my concerns as our church grows numerically and it becomes easier to just kind of show up and be in the crowd and disappear is that we would have people here who are drowning in isolation in a sea full of people and afraid to admit it. So friends, if that's you, if that resonates at all, please, please get connected. We can do, we can make programs and make on-ramps for you like our connection group that Lance was talking about in our community groups. We want you to get into those things, but at the end of the day, it's going to come to you taking the initiative and taking those steps to get into groups, to get to know people, to have people over, to introduce yourself. It can be hard. It can be difficult. It can be awkward and you feel like maybe you're imposing but friends like you're not supposed to live this life alone in isolation and we do have a lot of people who are willing to jump in and do that with you and we want to help you as leaders find a spot where you can live in that sort of community what's crazy about this is that he says all that not to encourage community. I mean, he does want to do that, but he says it in the context of the fact that even though he knows all that's true, he's looking out and seeing people living in isolation. So it comes back to, again, this vanity, this hevel, this vapor, like, why is it that when community is that good, that sweet, and that rich, and that helpful, I look out and I see people striving after the wind in isolation? One commentator, Craig Bartholomew, said this about that particular passage. He said, community is certainly better than isolation, but it is isolation that Colette, that's the speaker, has observed. So that his reflections on community intensify the problem of what he has seen rather than resolving it. So just I'm going to walk back through real quick and summarize these observations that our speaker has. The first is about mortality. He says, look, Man is no different than the beast. They have breath, and then they die, and they go back into the earth. The best a fellow can do is try to find some joy in his work. He looks at the oppression in the world. The people that it feels like, man, they've been better off if they just were never born. And he has no answer for that. He looks at the idea of work and points out that most of it is just being done to keep up with the Joneses and offers a little bit of wisdom there of, hey, you know what you should do is just have one handful of quietness rather than two handfuls of striving after the wind. Learn some contentment and it will go well for you. He looks at the political leaders, that rags to riches story, pulls the rug out from under it and says, yeah, that too is meaningless. He looks at community and friendships and how good they are, but is troubled by how much they're often lacking in people's lives. I think overall we could describe a lot of this as just a very unsatisfactory quest for meaning. But you and I have the advantage on this side of the cross of being able to see beyond life under the sun. If, 
If we don't get anything else out of the book of Ecclesiastes, I think we will get some gratitude that we live in this covenant, in this era, on this side of the cross, when the fullness of God's plan and purpose for salvation has been revealed in Jesus. Because we don't have to grasp at straws, wondering and trying to figure out where is the meaning and all the struggle in life under the sun. We still have those questions, but we have so much of an answer and hope in the person of Jesus because of what he has done on our behalf. We don't have to settle for the best a guy can do. There's a passage in Hebrews we went over when we were in that book talking about Abraham and how for a long time Abraham was kind of homeless. He was like an exile, just sojourning and wondering. He had left everything as God had told him to wander around searching for something else. And the writer of Hebrews said, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. And I love that verbiage because it's like, he knew that in this life, everything was vaporous. Everything was hard to grasp. Everything was fleeting. But he was looking forward to and striving towards something solid. A city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That Abraham, even though he didn't know God's full plan in the person of Jesus, he, he had some measure of hope that there was something better after this life, something more solid, something more reliable that he was looking forward to. We, on the other hand, what Abraham know in part, know in full. We understand that Jesus has gone before us to prepare a place for us. As he said in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. We have a hope that Solomon couldn't get his mind around. To him, it was a vaporous promise. To us, it's a sure and steady anchor because of what Jesus has done and said. I think that's why First Peter, in the book of First Peter, Peter talks about this idea that we see so much more than what Solomon or anyone else was able to see. Look at this with me in First Peter chapter 1, verse 10. It'll be on the screen. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Can't you hear Solomon searching and inquiring and all these thoughts he's tossing out there? Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, us, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. In other words, the hope that we have in the words and promises and work of Jesus is so deep and so rich that angels wish they could see what we see and experience what we experience with our hope and faith in God's deliverance for us at the end. He mentions that the prophets were saying things about Jesus but didn't quite know what they were saying. 
It makes me think of Isaiah chapter 53, where it talks about he was bruised for our transgressions and our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. But earlier in that passage, it says this. It says that Jesus, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In other words, when Jesus came down to live life under the sun with us as a man, he took on our griefs and he carried our sorrows. He experienced the same sufferings we have. Some of the greatest sufferings one can imagine is the suffering of isolation. A lot of times where I work at IGO, we'll do work with refugees, people who've lost everything, had to flood their home country, ended up in the U.S., Time and time again, when you ask them what was the hardest part about that whole thing, I mean, loss of family, loss of home, moving, having to reestablish themselves, the answer is nine times out of ten, loneliness. During all that, I was really lonely. Friends, I would say that no one understands the loneliness more than Jesus with what he went through on the cross. Listen to this quote by Douglas O'Donnell. Abandoned by God and people, Jesus made it possible for people to be in a right relationship with God and neighbor. From Gethsemane to Golgotha, a slow, sad separation occurred. Jesus was forsaken by Israel. He was forsaken by the twelve. Finally, in some inexplicable way, he was forsaken by the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm going to ask you at this time to pick up your um, Lord's Supper elements, and we're going to partake of that together. As we do this this morning, I want us to reflect specifically on the sufferings of Jesus that led up to the cross. That he came to live life under the sun just like we did. And that is moments of greatest need and most intense difficulty. Everyone turned their back on him. His disciples, his friends, the three, was left alone in the garden and ultimately alone on the cross, being abandoned by God and man. That's the suffering he went through because it's what we deserved in our sin and rebellion against our creator. But he took upon our sin and our sorrows, suffered in our place that we might be forgiven and reconciled, not only back to the right relationship with God, but back into a community of others, which is the way God had originally intended it, that we would walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day, in and amongst our brothers and sisters in him as a family. We look forward to that day as we remember him. His body broken, take and eat. His blood spilt, take and drink. Amen.